0: Ephesians chapter four, because we're still working out of Ephesians chapter four. I'm just not starting there today, but it's still part of the same discussion, which is really about growing up, and it involves all kinds of aspects of life. It involves our obviously our natural life, it involves our emotional life, it involves our spiritual life. But we're not just growing up to be mature adults. We're we're growing up to fulfill who we've been made to be, and who we've been made to be is part of the body of Christ, part of Him. Because when you were born again, you were grafted into Christ. You became part of him, part of his body. And you are, we're all part of one body, but individually we are different members of that body. And the differences that we have are simply differences in our function, not differences in our importance. When I do a wedding ceremony, part of the wedding ceremony I go through is Ephesians chapter. Uh, four, five, excuse me, and also in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where God talks about the order that He's established in the family. Um, and that, but that's not an order of importance because at the foot of the cross, the ground's level. None of us are more important than, than anyone else. That means that the Apostle John is not more important than you. That means the Apostle Peter is not more important. They may have their names in the book, in the Bible, but they're not more important than you. The differences that we have are differences in our function. Differences in our function, just like your body has different parts. So our growing up is not just maturing so that we're more mature Christians, because a mature Christian is not mature in himself. A mature Christian is mature in taking his place or her place in the body that we've been engrafted into. And that's what we've been finishing up on. And then there's one last ingredient, which we'll pick up on next week, which ties the whole thing together, and it's what it's all about. But we're going to finish this discussion today because it's about taking your place. And we've looked in Matthew chapter 25. Let's pray now before we get into the Word. Father, we thank you for the Word that you've given to us. Your Word reveals who you are, what you've done, and who you've made us to be. It also reveals your purpose for our life. So many people, Father, are struggling to find out what their purpose is. What is their identity? Who have you made me to be? And you reveal that to us in your Word. And so we thank you, Father, that as we open your Word today, we are expecting you by the Spirit of God to speak to us, not even so much with ideas, but in our heart with impressions, with visions, Father, with greater understanding, <clears throat> that You would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would see the hope of Your calling for our life that is in Christ Jesus. And Father, as we do this, we put our trust in Your Word, and we put our trust in Your Spirit and the anointing of Your Spirit, that we would not communicate the ideas of man, but we would communicate the wisdom and understanding of God. And so we trust You through the Holy Spirit and through Your Word to do that. In Jesus' name. Amen. Now this, of course, is the parable, parable of the talents. And as we talked about, we've, we've been in this for several weeks. We've seen that Jesus is speaking a series of parables here, talking about what's going to happen, talking about being ready for His coming back. And that's really what we're going to focus in on today. And so we see as this parable, I'll read through it, so we all start together in the same place. Verse 14, Matthew 25, 14. For the kingdom of God is like a man traveling in a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his ability. And immediately he went on a journey. We've talked about all that. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded them with them, traded with them and made five other talents. Likewise he had received two, gained two more. But he who had received one went and dug a hole in the ground and hid his Lord's money." And after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So that when he had entered, when he had received the five talents, came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more or additional talents besides them. And the Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Also he had received the two talents, came and said, "'Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides.' And his Lord said to him, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord.' And he had received the one talent, came and said, "'Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed, and I was afraid, and went and hid your, your talent in the ground. And look, here what you have is yours.' But his Lord answered and sent him, You wicked and lazy servant! You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and, to, and he will have in abundance. But from him who does not have even what he does have will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we're not going to go back into the talents and what they represent. They obviously represent gifts that God's given to you, abilities that God has given to us. And we've seen through other studies that we've had through the Bible that God has given to each of us at least one gift. We've seen that Paul talks about In Romans chapter uh, uh, 12, I think it is, Paul Paul talks about the fact that these are entrusted to us and that we are stewards of them. Excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We, We are stewards of these, and it is required of a steward. It's required, not suggested, not hoped for. It is required of a steward that we be found faithful. So what we've seen in this study is that what God has given to each of us the talents and the abilities that He's given to us. And we've talked about what some of them are. Some of them are spectacular ones. Some of them are ones that are obvious. If God has called you to be one of those ministry gifts that stands in front of people, then it's obvious what those gifting is as a teacher, as a pastor, as an evangelist, as a prophet, as, a, as an apostle. Those are the more obvious gifts. But there's some gifts that are more subtle, but they're still, just, they're still gifts. They're still just as supernatural. The most prominent gift is the gift of serving it's the gift of serving it's just seeing needs and meeting them and taking care of the natural needs of the people yesterday at the marriage seminar we had people had come came here and spent their day taking care of the children of the married couples that were here that was service and by their doing that they allowed the parents to be in here free from the concern of what was happening to their children because they knew they were being well taken care of just down the hallway so they could focus undistracted on what God wanted to say to them. That's serving the body. And we've talked about a number of those gifts, and we may later on at some point go back and give you some examples and help you fight, try with more effort to try to find what your gifting is. But the point here is this, is that what God requires of us is that we be, first of all, understand we're stewards of those gifts. They're not given to us as a blessing. They're not given to us as a reward because we've been so, we love Him so much. They're entrusted to us for the benefit of other people. And therefore, God is ex- requiring of, of us because we're stewards of these. See, when you're a steward of something, you don't own it. And if you don't own it, you don't have the right to decide how it's used. If I own something... It's mine. I can use it or not use it. I can do whatever I want with it. But if it's something entrusted to me, then I can't do what I want with it. We learned yesterday in the marriage couple seminar that our spouse does not belong to us in that sense, but has been entrusted to us by God. We're stewards to God of the child of God. I'm steward to God of His daughter that He has entrusted to me. To take care of it changes how I see her, and then we see that Paul says it's required of a steward not to produce results, but to be faithful. The results are God's responsibility. We'll see that more clearly today. The faithfulness to use it is your responsibility and my responsibility. So here we see there's an accounting that's given because the the, the master gives the gift, the talent and then leaves. While he's gone, there's no evidence that he's coming back other than he said he would. So every day they get up, they don't see him there. He's not standing over them saying, you know, what are you doing with his talents today? Have you taken care of them? He's left them to their care. And the only thing he said is, I will come back and ask for an accounting. And so every day they get up and they have to make a decision. Am I going to invest this? Am I going to use this talent? Or am I going to just sit by and, you know, as if nothing's ever going to happen as a result of whether I use this talent or I don't use that talent? And, of course, that's the situation we're in. This was a parable. He was not describing some real-life situation. He was telling them a story for their benefit. And it's for our benefit today. So the point here is that there is coming a day, because in the story, the Master did come back. And there is coming a day when our master's coming back. And just as in this case, he called each of those servants out and required an accounting of what did you do with what I entrusted to you. And then based on what they did, he gave them a reward. And that's what we're going to talk about today. The title of today's message is, You Get to Choose Your Reward, or What Reward Do You Choose? It's your choice. It's your choice. It's your choice. It's your choice. And notice the reward he gave them had, first of all, was a monetary reward. It was a return of what they'd given. So he, he gave them more of what they had. And the second thing is he gave them a responsibility in what was to come. And we talked last week about part of what the reward is, is not just God's going to drop money on you because the reward may or may not be that. But what He will do is understand that in the next kingdom, when Jesus comes and establishes His kingdom here, we will have responsibilities here. And what you're going through now, what you are proving to the Lord, what He can trust you with when He comes back. You are proving to Him. He knows what you're capable of, because we see that this Master allocated the talents to them according to their ability. But his reward was not based on their ability because they had no choice in the ability. His reward was based on their faithfulness with what he entrusted to them. And the result for those that were faithful, they had been servants. And he said, I will promote you to a ruler. In other words, because you've proven faithful with the little things that I entrusted to you today, you've proven faithful I now know I can entrust you with far greater responsibility in the kingdom that I establish when I come back. You're determining your job description in the next kingdom. You are. It's in your hands. And it's all by your faithfulness with what God's entrusted to you. It changes the way we look at things. And so that's what we've been talking about. So now what we're going to do today is we're going to pick up and we're going to begin to look at these rewards and these assignments. So turn with me now to Romans chapter 14. I want to just establish this with you also again. Now we love to hear the messages about how God wants to bless us. Pastor, teach us about the blessing. There's so much teaching out there about the blessing. I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed too. But the greatest blessing is to do things His way. The blessing always comes through obedience. I'm going to say that again. The blessing always comes through obedience. We want the blessing, but I don't want to have to do it through the obedience. But the blessing is often in the obedience, because the ultimate blessing isn't money or cars. The ultimate blessing is the relationship with Him. Romans chapter 14, verse 10, why do you judge your brother? Why do you show contempt for your brother? This is what I want you to see. For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Let me tell you what the word all means in Greek. It means all. It is the word pan, P-A-N. It means everything, everyone. That means if you are alive and breathing today and in the body of Christ, this verse is yours. Now, we don't like to look at this this is, the, this is the challenge that life insurance salesmen have. They've got to come and tell, sell you something based on something they know is going to happen to you. You know is going to happen to you, but you don't want to look at it. Human nature generally is: I don't want to look at certain things. There are certain things I do want to look at. If there's food on a table, I want to look at the ice cream. I want to look at the cake. I want to look at the pie. I want to look at the I want to look at the desserts that they are in. But I don't want to look at the Brussels sprouts. My mother used to make me eat lima beans. Now, I love lima beans today, but when I was seven years old, I knew they came from hell. I knew they were, and I wasn't a Christian, but I knew they were under the curse. They had to be at the top, they were part of the curse, because where I grew up, they didn't have these little ones that you get around here. I grew up outside of Philadelphia, and the lima beans we had were Jersey lima beans, And they were, those lima beans, (laughs) and they talked to me. They said, you put me in your mouth and I'm gonna choke you to death. (laughs) I've been sent to, I knew they, I knew I'd die. I was convinced of it. But she would say, you cannot have that dessert until you eat this lima bean. And I had to learn to be obedient Because I I like that. I didn't want to go through what I had to go through to get that. A life insurance salesman has to find some way to get you to face the fact you're not going to live forever. Because otherwise you don't need his product. But if you begin to recognize you're not going to live forever... And that when you leave this life, when you leave this body, you're going to have loved ones that need your continued support. Then you begin to recognize why I need the life insurance. But you don't get to that stage until you face the fact that you aren't going to be here forever. But it's the reality. The Word of God says it's appointed for every man to die. Now, I don't ask for a show of hands, but I wonder how many of you have that scripture on your your refrigerator. God supplies all my needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Amen! And right next to it is at the point that every man wants to die. But see, that shows that our minds are not really renewed to the Word of God. See, Paul's point of view is very different. I was reading through that this morning. Paul says in the beginning of the book of Philippians, you know, he says, I don't know whether to stay here or go. That means he had opportunities. There were people want to kill him. I don't know whether to stay here or go. He said, actually, personally... I'd rather go home to be with the Lord. But I recognize it's to your advantage that I stayed. See, Paul wasn't trying to hold on to his life because he was afraid to lose it. Paul was holding on to his life because he knew they needed him. What did Jesus say about holding on to our life? If you hold on to it here, you will lose it there. But if you let it go... Here, you will receive it. It's called the upside-down kingdom. What you let go of, you get back. What you give is returned to you. What dies is resurrection, comes to life again. See, the principle of heaven is you've got to trust God enough to let go of what you have to Him and trust Him to give it back to you. And the most difficult thing we have to entrust to Him is our own life. But Jesus said... Unless a grain of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it will die, if you'll sow it and it will die, it breaks open and new life comes out. See, life comes out of a resurrection. We all want the resurrection life. But to have the resurrection life, you have to have died. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, this is how he thought. I have been crucified with Christ. I me, what I want to do, my agenda, my purpose for my life, my rights, my blessings, my, 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 me, 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 my position, what people think of me, my reputation, what I think of myself. There's so many Christians out there trying to find themselves, and they don't understand the Word. The Word says that when you came to Christ, you died, and you were grafted into Him. And Paul understood this. He says, "I've been crucified with Christ. Therefore it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The end of 2 Corinthians, I think it is it says, "I have been crucified to the cross. through the, cro- through the, through the cross, I have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified." To me, I began to meditate this summer about the fact that I'd already died. See, so if you've been born again, the old you died. Why are we trying to hold on to it? Why are we trying to hold on to a life that's dying, that's full of death? Why are we trying to hold? What are we trying to hold on to? What is it? We ever ask you because we're trying to see the devil plays with this and gets you afraid to let go of yourself. Well, who's going to catch you? God. But if I don't take care of myself, He will. (laughs) If I don't provide, if I don't... But He said He will. See, only one person can be the ruler in your life. It's either you or Him. It's either you or Him. And so the point here is Paul had already in his own mind died. He was a walking dead man. So he wasn't walking around worrying about what people thought of him. He wasn't, that's why he couldn't be offended. The only reason you're offended is because you are concerned with what people think of you. Anytime you're offended, anytime that, 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 you, are, that you have trouble with forgiveness, anytime, it's, that's a part of you that's showing. It's like a part of you sticking out so that the devil can get a hold of. There's a verse right before Jesus went to the cross. It says, Satan could find no place in him. Why? Because there wasn't any of him left. He'd emptied himself, Philippians 2 says. He emptied himself. One of the videos yesterday said, isn't that interesting? Because the expression we have about some people is they're full of themselves. He emptied Himself. It says He took all of His glory, all of His divine attributes, and He emptied Himself. I think the King James, the New King James says, He did not regard equality with God something to be held on to. He was equal to God the Father, but He didn't regard it as something to be held on to, but He emptied Himself and took on the form of a man as a bond servant. He emptied himself. And why did he do that? Because he loved you more than he loved his own life. The video yesterday was so powerful because it, what it said is he had to make a choice. Either he could hold on to who he was and what he had and not have you Or he could let go of who he was and die to himself and have you. But you can't have it both ways. You can't hold on to yourself and have him. I mean, I'm not saying you can't be born again. I'm not saying you can't go to heaven. We're not talking about whether you... Because that's not based on works. That's based on your faith in Christ and what he's done. We're past that. We're talking about once you're there, what's it like? And we try to hold on to this life. And that's the only, listen to me, that's the only hold Satan has on you, is your drive to hold on to this life and yourself. That's the only hold he has. Because Colossians 1.13 says, when you came to Christ, you were transferred out of Satan's domain over into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. We belong and are members of the kingdom of God when you come to Christ. So you are members of His kingdom living as an ambassador in a foreign country. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 5 says we are ambassadors for Christ. Right around verse 19 or 20. And the only hold that Satan, who is the God of this world, has over you is you, the part of you that's trying to hold on to you, your rights. And the most disturbing thing to me of what I see in the body of Christ today is the focus of so many Christians are on what are my rights. What am I getting? What am I getting out of being a Christian? What are my blessings? What's my prosperity? And I'm in favor of blessings and prosperity. The Bible teaches them. But when the focus becomes on this is my right, then no longer have I been crucified with Christ. But I'm trying to live independently on my own. It's the doorway to freedom but it's a step of faith. It's a step of faith to let go of yourself and your concerns, but just think of the step of faith He had to take to let go of what He had. And you and I can't even begin to imagine what that's like until we get there. To let go of what He had and to become a man. And He didn't even just come to this earth as a 30-year-old full-grown man. He was conceived in a woman's, a teenager's womb. He was born the way you and I are born. He had to be fed by his mother, changed by a a human being. You and I can't imagine what a humbling step that had to be. And the reason he did it is because without that, He couldn't have you. You were worth more to Him than what He let go of in heaven. And now we have the choice of what are we willing to let go of to have Him. I don't mean just be born again. I mean have Him. Walk with Him. Know Him. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, I came that you might have life, the life of God, and that more abundantly. But the way into that life is to let go of yourself. Because we're trying to hold on to that old life because we're so familiar with it. It's been so much a part of our life that we don't want to let... So what we try to do is we try to bridge both of them. We try to live, we try to be as much in the kingdom of God as we can and still hold on to this other life and go back and forth. And that's what James talks about being a double-minded man. James talks in chapter 4. He says, when you realize this, he said, what you really are are adulterers and adulteresses. Because you're married to Christ, but you want to fool around a little bit with the world. I heard was John Bevere was here one time, so he said this, not me. <laughs> but it's the truth. He said that'd be kind of like. A couple gets married, have their wedding night. The next day they get up, they're having breakfast, and the brand new bridegroom says to the bride. You know what, I'm, I'm, we're going to live together for the rest of our lives, and I love you, and I'm committed to you, but I've got an old girlfriend I'd like to go back and spend a, a night or two with, um, and, and I, you know, I'll take care of you, I'll pay for you, I'll pay you my ties. and, oops, excuse me, <clears throat> I'll take care of you, I'll provide your needs, and I love you, I really love you. And this is, you know, I'm, I'm committed to you and I'll, I'll, I'm going to be with you for the rest of our lives, but I just want this one, it's, you know, I'm here for you. I really love you. What would she feel like? Say, wait a minute, didn't you just make some vow to me the day before yesterday? Well, I, you know, and yet, isn't that what we do? We've committed to Him. I'm talking to me as much as you. And that's why James says in chapter 4, you adulterers and adulteresses. Actually, in the, in the in original Greek, it says just adulteresses because He's the groom and we're the bridegroom. He talks about trying to love the world and Jesus at the same time. And the answer, he says, is we are to repent And as much as we love to sing about joy, he says, Mourn and weep over where you are. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Now, the good news is, he he says, Don't you know that the Spirit of God in you grieves jealously over you? He's grieving in us when we haven't let go of this world. Does that mean we can't have things? No, it doesn't mean that at all. It's an issue of the heart. It's not an issue of the pocketbook. It's not an issue of what's in your driveway. It's not an issue of what's in your house. It's not an issue of what kind of house you are. It's an issue of how much of you they have. What place in your heart are those things? What place in your heart is your own life, your rights? And again, the measure of it is, is how easily are we offended? How easily do we hold on to things? Because 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4 beginning in verse 4, tells us how God operates, what God's like in us. It's not touchy. It doesn't hold on to things that are done to us. And I'm sharing that with you because it's a sign because all of us go through that to some degree. And that is a sign that there's still part of me that hasn't been given over to Him. And it is a work. It is a process. But you must be committed to the process, not struggling against the process of the work of the Holy Spirit in you. I don't know why I got off on that. That was not in my notes. It was not in my thinking. But I believe it was in the mind of the Spirit of God today. He's challenging us to grow and to mature. And the reason that, see, if this message were being preached to the Apostle Paul, he'd be jumping up and down because he'd seen something we're still yet struggling to see. And that's what we're talking about right now. That's why he can say, if I had a choice right now, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. Why? Because I'm already there. My heart's there. I'm talking about in heaven. My heart's there. My eyes are there. My commitment's there. I'm just living here to be faithful to what he's called me to do because that's where I'm going. And that's why the Bible says Paul wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. The context in there is walking in this world realizing that this is temporary, that there is a home we have for us. We are members of this kingdom, not of Satan's kingdom. And we're simply here on an assignment. You've already died spiritually to who you were, and you've been born again. Now the battle is here, and it's with this flesh. It's with this flesh. But you cannot be committed to both kingdoms, you've got to choose which one you're going to serve. All right. So this is all good news. Say good news. Good news. Oh, that's pretty good. That gets good. All right. So we will all appear. Says we're going to all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now that word judgment, I, I don't like that term. I'll be very frank with you. This verses used to trouble me because I don't like the idea of judgment. The word judgment in the Bible usually is a word that simply means to discern what's one thing from another, to draw a line. Here it's a different word. It's the Greek word bima, B-E-M-A. And it's a word that was used to, to apply to a seat where the consul, whoever was the ruler, the mayor, basically in those in our terms, the mayor or the governing body of a town would sit at that and either and pass judgment. In fact, if you read through the account where Jesus was brought before Pilate, it says he came out and took the seat, the judgment seat. It is this word; it was a seat for the person that was the highest in authority to make decisions. It was also used in a, in 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 an arena where they played. Games like Olympic Games, where they had running and you know, the kind of things we do for the Summer Olympics. And there was a seat there where the highest ruling authority that was in attendance at those games sat. And when the races were over, they would the winner would come up and they were presented with not a gold medal, but a a laurel wreath of you know, a wreath made out of the laurel bush around to wear on their head. And they would come up and they would bow before this seat where the ruler was sitting and he would hand out the reward for having been the first to win the race. That's what this term means here. And what we're going to see that it's judgment not to send you to heaven or hell. Because there is a judgment seat it's called the great great the great the great white throne of God. And that's where the goats and the sheep are separated. This is a seat that Christians will come and stand before. And it is a seat where your reward it is where an account is given of what you did in this life. And that's what we're going to go on and see. This is not whether you're going to get to heaven or not, because this seat is in heaven. We will all stand before the judgment of seat of Christ, for as is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God, so that each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say each one will also give an account of my spouse. One of the questions that came up yesterday in the marriage seminar, it was both raised in a video and it was also came up in some questions, is, yeah, if I'm, what if I'm doing what's right and she doesn't? It's none of your business. I mean, it obviously affects you, but you'll give an account for what you do with what you're called to do not whether what he does or what she does with it. You'll give an account for what you do. So we each will give an account of our own selves. One of the distractions we get is we get caught up in what somebody else is supposed to do. One of my favorite stories about that is in the last chapter of the book of John, Peter is, of course, denied Christ three times, Jesus has come back after he'd been raised to the dead. He meets them on the shore of Galilee. They have the fish there. He tells the supernatural catch of fish. They eat breakfast together. And then he says to Peter, come on, let's walk down the beach. And they're walking down the beach, and three times Jesus asks him, do you still believe that you love me more than these? And, and Peter goes through. Basically, this is a restoration of the three times he, de- he denied him. And in each time he's coming back to him, he says, feed my sheep. He changes it a little bit the last time but he's restoring him to his responsibility. He's saying, I know you stumbled and you fell. I've forgiven you. Now, go do what I called you to do. And after he said that, he says to him, he says, and when you're old, this is how you're going to die. You're going to be lifted up the way I was. So he's telling Peter, basically, you're going to live out most of your life. Now, Peter hears some footsteps behind them, and he looks over the shoulder, and there's John walking down after them. So Peter says to Jesus, well, what about him? See, they're human. I love it. They're just human. All right, that's what's going to happen to me. What about him? And Jesus says to him, none of your business, (laughs) in essence. He says, what what if he were to live until I come back? Because that was the question in Peter's mind. Is he going to get to live more than I am? See, there's still that competitiveness. And Jesus, he he didn't say he's going to live until I come back, because obviously he didn't. What he said is, what, if, is it, what is it to you what I do with him? Now, when we're married, we're one with each other, but we're going to stand separately and give an account of our lives individually, of what we did with what we were given to do. So let us... So let us... Each will give... it. Verse 12. Each will give an account of himself Verse 13, so let us therefore not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or cause to fall in our brother's way. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This was part of the scriptures I was just quoting before. We're going to actually start um, in verse 9. Therefore we make it our aim, whether to be present or absent, to be well-pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, or or the reward for the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And the word bad there also means useless. Good means productive, and bad means useless. Well, how can I do good deeds that are useless if they're not what God called you to do? Remember what we're accountable for, to be faithful to what God's given us to do. So if I go do something as good as it may be, but it's not what God gave me to do, it's useless. Because I'm not doing what I was made to do. That's as if your little toe decided it wanted to be your index finger, and somehow succeeded in doing some pointing. <laughs> well, if your little toe is doing pointing, it's not doing what it was supposed to do, and your body's not functioning properly. So many people have the confusion. They're, well, I just need to do a bunch of good things, and I'm going to get rewarded for good things. No, we're not rewarded for good things. We're rewarded for being faithful to do what we were called to do. Because if I'm doing good things and they're not what I was called to do, to Jesus, they're useless. They may have been a benefit to other people, but they're useless to Him. I don't have time to show you the Scriptures, but the Scriptures teach that the essence of sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is when I make my decision of what I'm going to do, and I don't submit to His decision of what I'm to do. I pick out what I to do. See, this is not where you take an aptitude test and there's a guidance counselor who says, you know, we think this is what you're best equipped to do. It's what He's called you to do. Now one of the ways of discerning what He's called you to do is to look at how God's made you. But that's not the ultimate standard, and that's not the ultimate purpose. All right, we've got to move on here. All right, let's go. Go over to verse 11, and this is where we begin to tread a little lightly. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but are well known to God, I also trust well, or we are well known in your consciences. I don't like that. (laughs) I'd like to rip that out. I don't mind most of it. It's the word terror I don't like. Am I the only one? Because he said, because of the terror of the Lord, he just saw that we're going to have to stand before him, and now he's talking about the terror of the Lord? (laughs) How are we going to be able to stand? Somebody's got to hold us up. Well, it can't quite mean that. This is why you can't just take a verse out of context. Now, the word terror there in Greek is the word phobia, from which we get phobos, from which we get phobia which is fear. And actually, the root of that word meant to run in stark terror. And that it evolved into a word that meant what caused you to run in stark terror. But the word has other meanings. And I'm going to give you just some scriptures to show you the other meanings because I believe that's what it means here. It has to. One of the meanings is respect. Romans 13, 7 says, Pray to all, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are due, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed. And that word respect there is the same word. 1 Peter 2, verse 18 says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. The word respect there is that same word phobos. It's also translated reverence. In Ephesians 5.21, which we talked about yesterday, it says we are to submit to one another out of reverence for the Lord. That's the word phobos. And what it really refers to is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. I'll say that again. The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of God. We've developed, in many of us, a fear of certain authorities because we've seen their authority abused. Their motive for exercising their authority over us was punishment. Remember, the purpose for this seat we stand before is for the giving of rewards. The fear of the Lord is an awesome reverence for who He is. Not just, God, I love you, you're wonderful. It's a reverence for His authority. If you were fortunate enough to be raised by a father that you knew loved you, see, whatever's coming out of the heart, it's the motive of the heart. There were times with our children... I play with them. I was daddy to them. But there were times I was father. And when I was, my voice changed. My tone changed. I was exercising my authority and if it was necessary, my power over them. But it was motivated by my love for them. Now turn with me to 1 John chapter 4 and I'll show you this. I wanted. To avoid this, to be very frank with you, I wanted to just skip over that verse 11 and not open this subject up. But it's in there, and it is an important ingredient, because the reason that we will let these gifts go and not act the way we're supposed to act to, act is because we don't understand who who we're going to stand before when we give an account. We're going to stand before Jesus Christ. When he, when he came in the book of Revelation and revealed himself to John, the last time John had an experience with him, he was lying with his head on his shoulders. The next time he saw him, he was the risen Lord, standing there in glory, with fire coming out of his eyes, and the mouth with a tongue with a two-edged sword. He was not just sweet Jesus. He was the Lord God Almighty. But he still loved him. All right, First John chapter 4. Give me a chance to get there. Verse 17. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we have boldness in the day of judgment. That's what we're talking about now. Because as He is, so are we in this world. In other words, when we stand before Him, we're going to recognize that we're like Him. We're a child of God, just like He is. Verse 18. For there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment, and he who fears has not been perfected or completed in love. What these verses are telling us is that when we stand before Him, we will recognize that the One who is judging us loves us beyond what we've ever imagined. And so we don't need to fear the judgment, because the One who's going to administer it to us loves us. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And though He loves us, we've got to remember who He is. Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. Now, he's talking about serving in the body here, because he talks back uh, in verse... uh, about his role and Apollos' role. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but it's God that caused the increase. In other words, and this is the principle we've been talking about all along. Ministry, which is what you're called to and I'm called to, is really a partnership with God. It's, but that's the same as saying my hand is in partnership with my head. Because remember, we're the body and He's the head. So my hand works together with my head To accomplish something. So if I need to put my glasses on, my hand, my head tells my hand, you need, John, you need your glasses on because you're going to read. So my hands reach out and in cooperation with my head, they put them on my head. And that's an activity we do without thinking much about it. In the same way, Jesus, because he's the head, works through you, who may be a hand, maybe a foot, maybe a mouth, whatever it is. So although Paul said, I planted, that was my role, and Apollos watered the word. It's God that caused the increase. So God was working through what they did. He was working through their giftings to produce the results He wanted. That's why He needs you to do what you're called to do so that through you He can produce what He wants to produce in partnership with you. But notice this. But it's God that caused the increase. So then neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but it's God who causes the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. We're in partnership with Him. And you are God's field, we're God's building. According to the grace of God which was given to me. Remember what the word grace means. It's the gifting in this context according to the gifting and ability that God has given to me as a wise master builder. That was his function. I have laid the foundation, and another has built upon it. That was his role. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's who we're ministering. Verse 12, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold or silver or precious stones or wood or hay or straw. In other words, you get to choose the quality of the way, what you do with what God's given you. You can either treat it and do it as if it's gold or silver or you can treat it like it's stay, uh, hay or stubble. That's your choice, the quality of what you what you what you do with that gift that God's given to you. You can treat it like gold, or you can treat it like hay. And what you're able to build or accomplish with what God's given you to do will be determined by how you treat that gift. But there's more tied to that. Verse 13, each one's work will become clear. For the day, and the word day means the day of the Lord, the day we're talking about. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work, what sort it is. If anyone's work has been built, which he has built on, endures, he will receive a reward. It's kind, I'm, not, I'm sure this isn't it, but I kind of get this picture as if we all kind of stand before him and there's this, there's this heavenly blowtorch. You ever see those old movies, you know, where the Roadrunner and the, and E. The, Coyote, and Wile Coyote sets this bomb off, and, and the next thing you know, he's standing there, and, the, and the, the smoke is coming off him, and there's just nothing left. I don't want to be that. But I don't believe it's the fire of a blowtorch. In Revelation, it talks about his eyes of fire. I believe the fire represents the truth of His eyes. Because He is truth. Can you imagine standing, looking face to face into the eyes of truth Himself? And say, so well, you understand, it was kind of hard, you know, I did the best I could. I, you, know, I, you know, gotta give me a little break here, you know. You know no way. It's just you... And what you did, standing in the full light of His eyes, of truth. And whatever was not of God, there's a scripture in Matthew that says, whatever God didn't plant, He will uproot. Whatever's not of God will just fade away. And what's left that says, you will be rewarded for now say, well, okay, you know, I can get by in this life and just kind of live you know, as I want because it's okay if I don't have any rewards. At least I get to heaven. Well, let's think about what that means. How long are you here? 70, 80 years? How long are you there? Forever. I'm going to trade a few years here of laziness. But I'm in heaven, Yeah. But you don't understand what those rewards mean because we're going to all come and lay them down at his feet in recognition that the ability that we had to do this came from him. And I want something to be able to give back to him and give to him. I don't want to stand on the outskirts and say, I'm glad to be here. because See, once you're, glad to, once you're there, that, that reward's over. Once you realize, I made it. Pastor Sam used to talk about some of us make it and there's still smoke behind. (laughs) Whoo! is that close. Whoo! And I'm in. And you'll be glad you are. But once that moment of exhilaration's over, you're spending the rest of eternity with empty hands. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. We're saved by grace, but we're rewarded based on our faithfulness to do what He's called us to do. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus, who has appeared in verse chapter 1 and to the Apostle John on the Isle of Patmos when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. And he, he gives him a revelation, which is what, why it's called the Revelation. But the, chapter 2 and 3, he's dictating letters, report cards to seven churches in Asia Minor. And there's a pattern in them. The details are different. But in each one of them, I think with one exception, he says, write this letter to them, I know your works. I know what you did. And he'll commend them. I know you were faithful. You had, you know, I, and of some of them he said, you'd, you know, the, the, there was a cult that tried to get in and you, you stood for the right doctrine and you did the right things and you didn't give in when these pressures were going. I know you did that, but here's where you fell short. I know your works. I know what you did. He's the same Yesterday, today and forever he knows what we're doing or not doing with what he's given us to do and we will stand someday all of us before him and give an account what did you do with what i entrusted to you to do in my body